Welcome to the faculty podcast of Reformed Theological Seminary, Washington, D.C., part of a 50-year endeavor in training men and women for the gospel ministry of the 21st century. Uh, I am not Dr. Scott Redd. Uh, I hope I got that intro right as well. Uh, uh, I'm Peter Lee. I'm professor of Old Testament here and dean of students. Uh, We have a short group here uh, doing our podcast. I'm here with uh, my fellow colleagues, uh, Dr. Paul Jun, senior pastor of New City Church and professor of New Testament here, and uh, Dr. Grace Sutanto, our new professor of theology, um, who is now a resident here in the Washington, D.C. area. We're without our fellow colleagues, Dr. Scott Redd and Dr. Tommy Keene, so it's just going to be the three of us uh, talking about uh, certain subjects uh, that are relevant within the current discussion. Uh, as we were kind of brainstorming on what to talk about this morning, we, th- we thought of the idea of image of God. Uh, it's a real big discussion that's out there. It's been going on for quite a long time. Uh, I know that uh, Dr. Grace Utanto here has been doing some work on the image of God, so I think I'm going to maybe start and ask if he could uh, lead our discussion here. Uh, Gray, how's it going, man? Oh, it's very well, Peter. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. Well, I thought I could actually ask you the question first. I mean, you are our Old Testament professor here. Um, and of course, the foundational text of the image of God, among other things, is Genesis 1, 26 to 28. We could talk about Psalm 8 as well. Lots of different features of the Old Testament speak to the image of God. So how would you first characterize and define the image of God? Well, I, I, yeah, I definitely appreciate the biblical foundation on which we talk about image. Uh, that's, of course, uh, how we have to do this. As we talk about uh, what the, the uh, Old Testament says about image of God, it, it's obviously very foundational to our even doctrine of man. Uh, we were created in God's image. Um, that isn't limited to any particular subgroup of uh, humanity. It's intrinsic in our human nature, human identity, as being within, uh, being made in the image of God. Again, in the context of Genesis 1, that's in contrast to the rest of creation. Uh, creation is made according to a kind, you know, and you see that repeated throughout the Genesis 1 account uh, that God created. Um, you know, various different kinds of animal life according to a kind, according to a kind. You see that repeated. Uh, The expectation of Genesis 1 is to then see humanity made according to a kind. But there is no according to uh, a kind. The the remarkable and uh, uh, outstanding thing uh, is the shocking statement that we are made in the image of God. That's the contrast. Uh, And that's what uh, sets aside humanity uh, as creatures, Uh, above and distinct, unique from all other creation, that we are the only ones uh, in all of creation that was made uh, in the image um, of God. And that already puts a very uh, special, dignified, um, uh, hallowed place in terms of our our identity as uh, as creatures, as image bearers. The sole uh, uh, claim that we can make that we alone are made in the image of God. Well, that's a very foundational passage there in Genesis chapter 1, right? And what's really interesting about that passage is that God said, let us make man in our image, right? And so in his image, he made us male and female. And so there's lots of discussion about what the us there refers to. Is this referring to um, an angelic host? Is this in reference to a sort of royal we so that he's speaking as if there is a plurality there? Or is this, like a lot of our best theologians would say, in reference to the Trinity, the triune God? And actually, that's how Bavink would take it. And we can talk about this a little bit later on. Bavink would argue that 
um, fundamentally, when we're made in the image of God, we're made in the triune image. And so that means that there will be particular features of the human race that would image particularly the triune uh, shape of God's being. So if God is the archetypal unity and diversity, there will be an ectypal unity and diversity that shapes humanity. And I think that's something that's really important. And of course, there's other facets to the image of God, the ethical design of humanity, the particular way in which Christ images God. And I think Paul, there's lots of passages in the New Testament that picks up on the Christological shape of the image of God as well, isn't there? Well, great. I think you hit on so many great points as usual, right? But, you know, for many of our listeners, this can sound like lofty theology, but it also actually gives us insight into why we are communal by nature. You know, if it mm -hmm. if we are made in the image of God, uh, there's nothing wrong with, if I can use this language, of being needy or needing community. If anything, this whole idea of rugged individualism, autonomy, independence, it goes against the way we are made. And so I, I don't want to offer too much in terms of, you know, this is why we should believe in God. But all of this that we're talking about being made in the image of God actually helps us to really understand uh, how we tick, why we are the way we are, and therefore it points us to someone outside of our own being. Oh, absolutely, right? So when we're thinking about being made in God's image, relationality is really an important feature of it, right? I mentioned the motif of unities in diversities, and Bavink would argue that there's at least three layers of this. There's a unity in diversity in regard to the human self, right? Which means that we have a diversity of faculties, we have an intellect, we have volitional capacities, we have affections, things like that. But yeah, there's still a united personality that undergirds all of these faculties. And also there's a body. We have different members within our body, but yet again, a distinct personality that drives our body. And sin really ruptures this unity and diversity. Sin causes us to prioritize emotions over our reason or our rational faculties over our affections. There's always a disunity between what our mind wants and yet how our body behaves and things like that. And so part of being sanctified means bringing all of these diverse faculties together into a singular personal whole, where your person and your body and your mind actually reflect a single unity. But the second feature of being made in God's image is the creation between male and female. Bavink would argue the fact that the two genders complement one another in, in distinct ways. And also a, a third facet is the fact that we're all created as a corporate whole. All of us are a single human race. Bavink would actually argue that the image of God refers not just to individuals, but singularly also the entire human race as a corporate whole. And so that comes back to Paul's point that we all need one another. And that actually ethical relationships, uh, our bond, our solidarity with one another is that which is, um, if I could use a philosophical loaded term, ontologically constitutive of the human race without relationships there would be actually not a, a cohesive reflection of our image-bearing capacities, if I could put it that way. And to put it in more sort of grounded terms, we all need one another, as Paul was saying. And the more we turn ourselves outward toward one another, the more we're actually reflecting who we are as image-bearers of God. The image is such a, uh, you know, it really is such a great concept that, uh, you know, by and large, I think our Reformed tradition underestimates because we're so, when it comes to doctrine of man, 
you know, our, our reformed uh, tradition is so fixated on depravity, our, our, our fallen nature. Uh, and we oftentimes forget we weren't created that way. We were created good in the image of God and how binding that is. Um, it, it does, of course, uh, you know, work within the context of some sort of a theistic worldview. Uh, I re um, I've often thought of, um, there's a French um, politician who actually fought against the uh, Nazis in World War II, uh, Andre Malraux. He served under Charles de Gaulle uh, as a cabinet member of his, who, who once said, and he was a follower of Nietzsche and and, and really embraced this uh, God is dead theology. And, and he said, this is back in the 1950s, I think, in a UN address where he said, you know, that God is dead is very clear to me. What I don't know is if man is dead. And what he meant by that is, you know, if if um, our, the doctrine of God is now collapsing here in the West, in Western Europe, and, and theologically it, it was starting to fall, but yet we still embrace a, a, a Christian concept of man. Just how long is it going to take before that concept now begins to deteriorate? Mm. Uh, and it's, he was almost prophetic, if you think about this. I mean, this is in the early, 19, early 20th century, and if you see the the wars, the theological wars that we have fought now in the last seventy years, you know how much of that has really been uh, fixed on 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 anthropology. You know, there's been you know discussions on justification, Trinity. You know, we had open theism about twenty years ago, so there is some concept of God still. But the thing that is really um, been dominating the the discussion in the context of the church and the public sphere has been issues like race and racism, you know, gender, uh, sexual orientation, the roles of, uh, you know, women, men in the context of the church, the family. And one thing that, uh, and, and tell me what you think here, that, uh, that it seems to have been almost a saving grace to some extent to provide some kind of meaning and context to this madness of discussion has been our our doctrine of the image of god mm -hmm. uh if you think about all the works that's been done in the in the last uh, recent years uh the image of god discussions has sort of resurged itself as a as a major topic of discussion mm -hmm. um you know our friend erwin Inst, you know has written a book on on the community and he has a whole chapter there on image uh i have an op pastor friend who did some work on um on uh, mental disabilities, but how the mentally disabled are still image bearers. That was mm -hmm. his big thesis, that they are still image bearers of God. And uh, I mean, what do you think? Is that is that kind of, is this the war of our generation and, and the generation that come? You know, our forefathers had to fight, you know, doctrine of scripture, doctrine of uh, salvation. Um, you know, I, I think uh, I think it was Fuchs, uh, a, a, a Dutch reform theologian, or maybe an Abraham Kuyper, I can't quite recall that, that suggested that you can actually follow the history of the church by some of the major doctrinal wars, mm -hmm. the Trinity in the early church, um, justification, salvation during the Reformation period, you know, doctrine of scripture and sort of the beginning of the modern era, you know, in our day to day, it's sort of become the doctrine of man. That's mm -hmm. sort of the thing that we really have to fight over now. Sure. Yeah. I don't know about talking about in terms of wars, but definitely important theological debates really do mark particular eras of church history. And I do think theological anthropology is one of them. And you made a great point there, Peter, about the denigration of God leading to the potential denigration of the concept of humanity, even in itself, right? If we're made in the image of God, it means that humanity is essentially a reflexive and reflective sort of being 
take away the archetype and what is the ectype? Take away the original and what is the imprint, right? And so take away the image of God, uh, take away God, and, and suddenly humanity um, has nothing to image, has nothing to imitate, has nothing to have its sort of anchoring reference point. And I think you mentioned there race. Let me just mention two implications of the image of God that might be pertinent to the concept of race. Um, at least it's the way in which popular discourse is talking about it now. First is the idea of systemic sin. And second is the idea of diversity in itself, right? So first, um, I think I find it very odd when Christians deny the concept of systemic sin or generational sin or corporate sin because the fall is the most potent example of a corporate sin. Because of one man's sin, all men are held responsible and are fallen because of that singular sin, right? And so here's one sin that impacts generations afterwards. And um, what, what the image of God denotes is that this is actually not um, an arbitrary decision by God, where God says, Adam, you will be arbitrarily chosen to represent the human race. But this is actually reflective of humanity's corporate triune organic shape. If we're made in terms of a unity and diversity, then Adam is that uniting factor and we are federally represented by him. And so if Adam fell, it makes sense that we would fall. And when we think about this in terms of family, when one member of the family falls, especially if it's the head of the family, the father, or one president falls, if it's a king that falls, the whole nation suffers. These are all, you know, analogically pointing back to that federal representation of Adam. And so scripture has a very rich understanding of systemic and corporate sin that can transfer itself from generation to generation. And I think so when I talk to people about conversations on race and they're like, well, we don't need theology. Let's turn to sociology. Let's turn to just, you know, secular anthropology to discuss matters in corporate systemic sin. I would argue, hey, go back to your theological roots. There's deeper foundations there for discussions of these things. Uh, secondly, this notion of diversity, right? If you think about the way in which scripture talks about the Tower of Babel, and I would love to hear what you all think about the, the, the Babel narrative there, right? God, in punishing the people who made the Tower of Babel, disperses humanity. Well, again, to refer back to Bobbing, he would argue this is both a curse and that it's a punishment, but it's also a blessing because he argues as humanity is fruitful and multiplies and spreads all over the entire world, it will naturally diversify itself, right? There's going to be different languages, different ways of dress and food and things like that, and uh, different ways of making culture, therefore. And this is not a bad thing. And so one of the things he says is that if Christianity is truly Catholic and universal, Christian faith in one location could look different than another location. What binds them together is a singular confession of the triune God. Um, but it doesn't mean that cultural expression has to be the same. So there's a unity and diversity motif there. And so at the last day, you know, there's, there's particular critical race theorists out there to talk about asset thinking and wealth thinking in terms of looking at the diversity of peoples as an asset rather than a threat. Um, you know, at the last day, the wealth of the nations that is brought into the new heavens and new earth is actually that diversity. And that's not a threat to the church. It's a good thing. And, and part of racism is a sort of uniformity sort of tendency that wants to see Christianity as tethered to just one culture rather than uh, manifesting in a diversity of cultures and, and using a single culture to adjudicate upon the many. So I think that's really important. Again, the doctrine, the image of God becomes a source for contemporary political and ethical issues. And so going back to your theology rather than away 
is uh, the way forward. Well, so regarding your comment on like corporate corporates and systemic uh, injustice, well, you didn't say systemic injustice, but I don't think that thoughtful, theologically oriented Christians would disagree with that general idea of like corporate sin. I think what's difficult now, however, is the application of that to uh, current discussions on race. And so when we see, for instance, um, who's that Old Testament character? He he stole the booty. Aka or what's his name? Aiken. Aiken. Close enough, right? In that instance, it was almost easier to apply this idea of corporate uh, sin because because the lines were clearly drawn, or even with uh, the example of Adam. Yes, that, that's actually very well defined. I think the struggle here is, you know, especially when you incorporate like a lot of ideas on like what exactly is a race, what exactly is an ethnicity, how do you draw the lines on who is part of this corporate sin? So like, I think the idea is definitely very biblical, the idea of corporate sin. I think, again, where it gets difficult, especially in our current discussion is like, so let's say, uh, I think this is a great example. Let's say you're from some part of Europe. So you're, you're, the color of your skin is white, right? And then you move over into the United States, right? And so uh, are you implicated in what some people might call American corporate sin of slavery. I think that's where it gets very complicated. You know, and so I don't know, Gray, if you have any thoughts on that, but I agree with the idea of corporate sin. I think the application of it is very complicated, however. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and it depends what you mean by perhaps when that person from Europe emigrated to the United States, mm-hmm. right? Uh, definitely if we're thinking about the, the 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, then the colonial empire and the expansion of that becomes uh, very clear and obvious, but but you're right. It's sometimes very difficult to sort of be granular and specific about where that corporate sin could be manifested, especially today, and to say that you are part of the corporate sort of um, entanglement of it. But that's, I think it's one thing to say it, it's really hard to specify. It's another to deny it altogether. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I agree with that. Yeah. yeah, and I think what we see today is sort of just any, at least in some quarters, like there's a, there's a suspicion towards the very concept of a corporate sin. Uh, because they're very interested on another emphasis of the Bible, which is personal responsibility, mm-hmm. right? So if I haven't personally partaken in it, so why should I be um, obligated to think about my responsibilities in this? But we can't we can't talk about that a bit more. Um, what do you have any other thoughts about that, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, another related thought I do have to on this is so if you call out a certain group. And I'm I'm speaking generally and vaguely, somewhat intentionally, and accuse this particular group of corporate sin or corporate guilt. It works both ways because many of the groups that are not implicated have benefited from this apparent corporate guilt. And so again, this is going back to my point of like it's difficult to draw the line so i'm obviously not caucasian the color of my skin is not white have i benefited deeply from these apparent injustices yes i have Uh, uh, and so then does that make me uh, 
guilty as well. You know, and this is why, yes, the idea of corporate sin is definitely, I think, biblical and so forth, but it gets so complicated that, like you said, Gray, we shouldn't reject it altogether, but it has to be done in a way that's not arbitrarily beneficial just to me. Does that make sense, Gray? Like, well, there's uh, definitely, I think, a a context in which um, you know a certain uh, sin, whatever that might be, is associated with a certain group that we can that we are all a part of. I mean, we're not individuals without a certain context uh, historically. Uh, ethnically, culturally. And I think it's worthwhile for us to always kind of be aware of that and to kind of examine our own hearts. Are we following that same kind of lines of thinking? Um, is, uh, you know, don't we need to kind of reevaluate uh, just because it's sort of always been done this way by my group? Do I, can, should I continue in that? Is this appropriate? Is this right? Um, you know, uh, and I think it's definitely a sense in which we have a corporate dimension and a corporate direction and flow of, of things that we always need to kind of wonder and challenge to the authority of scripture. Uh, you know, whatever, uh, that, um, uh, that, that might, uh, that thing might be, but yeah, you're definitely right. Gray, in terms of the, the unity diversity aspects, um, of image where, um, uh, you know, the various different aspects of the self, the gender, male, female, the corporate identity of, of image is such a uh, key component and, and something that's not limited to any particular group. You know, that's one of the amazing things about a reformed doctrine of image of God. It's still there in spite of the fact that it's been corrupted by sin. It's a corrupted image, but the image is still retained. I think, you know, I, I know there are a few who, who deny you know, that, that because of sin, the image has been obliterated. It's gone. I don't think that's a common view. I think the majority of us would still hold to the fact that the image of God is still there. Thus, um, you know, regardless of race or gender or a historical background, there is a certain uh, corporate unity that we have because we all share that uh, that image. Um, the uh, I guess what I find uh, really fantastic about the image is, and in that sense, there is a sort of an inclusiveness about the image of God. It's not limited to any particular person. But the New Testament does speak about a renewed image, you know, uh, uh, something that we have in our redemption of Christ. I mean, we just celebrated the resurrection uh, and how in the resurrected Christ we have sort of a resurrected image, something that has been... Um, that has been uh, depraved, that has been corrupted and, and poisoned, that now is renewed, um, that is very limited only to the to believers. Uh, and I do think in all of the image discussion, we have to see the redemptive aspect of image. Um, image is renewed. Uh, image is uh, redeemed. Um, and that's not that isn't for everybody. That is only for believers. Hmm. Uh, I fear that the the way in that the image discussions has been going on for the last several years has has stopped at that point, and we forget that yes, as humanity, that there is a bonding and a communal aspect to image that's not isolated to one. And this is the reason why you know the the counter to racism is image of God. The counter to misogyny is image of God, and and I think that's that's absolutely true, but we can't stop there. We have to see that there is a renewed image that we 
um, press on towards that can only be found in Christ, and mm. and that's an aspect of image that you don't hear as much in the in the in the current dialogue that I I, I would like I'd like to see more. But again, it's kind of going against the flow of the um, uh, of the narrative to kind of be inclusive. Don't isolate any particular group on their own. Bring as everyone together. What can that be? Well, as Christians, image is great in in a sense. Uh, but there is this aspect of the eschatological image that isn't limited, that is limited only to the uh, to to believers, and that's where we I think have to also push it. It's great that we can bond with um, uh, others, even non-believers, and say that they're images as well. But we can't be content with that, not as Christians, right? I mean, we have to be able to uh, push beyond that and say, you know, that they have a gift of being image bearers. Uh, that's tainted, that needs to be renewed, and that can only come by faith in Christ. Yeah, I think that keeping that primarily theological reference point is so important. It also addresses some of Paul's worries there. I think the specific complex-making sort of factors um, come when we're thinking about um, applying Christianity to, you know, sort of horizontalized reality. So, So thinking about like, economic factors and, and justice sort of issues and things like that is very, very complicated and granular. And you need a lot of hard work to think all those through. But what's really clear, and I think uh, in a lot of ways simple, is the priority of forgiveness in mm-hmm. all of this, right? So which means that if if the image bearing function of, of who we are means corporate solidarity, corporate reconciliation and things like that, and the way in which Jesus himself is the true humanity. And so if we are all reconciled in Jesus Christ and we're all Christians together, we need to prioritize forgiveness as the way in which we address guilt and sin. And so prior to and behind all the complexities about race and justice and things like that is, again, the priority of forgiveness, which makes us included together into the church. Um, and also, I think, a, a sense of patience. So it's so a priority and forgiveness and a sense of patience with diversity, uh, being okay with people being different. And so what do I mean by that? I think in some ways, because we're so um, aware of issues of ethnicity and culture, and you've asked the question, what is even race and ethnicity? And I do think it's primarily about culture. And, and you know, part of our racist horrors in history past is essentializing race. And I think that's a huge, huge problem. But if we're just thinking about the biblical sense of, of diversity, I do think it's about culture and the nations and the tribes and the tongues and things like that. I think what the corporate image of God tells us is that we have to be patient with diversity, which means that we can't mechanically enforce diversity on the one hand, and we can't be impatient when diversity comes our way. In other words, if diversity comes your way, accept it, embrace it, and it's okay. They don't have to look the same as you. We can all be Christians and look different together. And yet, if you want to see diversity, you can't just enforce it, if that makes sense. You can't just say, I think that, you know, I want to now make this a very specific culture in this church and that's my american culture or my indonesian culture or my asian culture whatever it might be it has to be organic from the ground up rather than mechanically enforced and and so we can go on on one or two sides where we can say we want more diversity so let me now mechanically enforce diversity make sure that 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 i only hire specifically uh, for diversity or i only enforce specifically diversity making rules and things like that I think, I think that's perhaps a, a lack of understanding of the fact that locality and diversity has to be 
from the ground up rather than something that you can impose. Yeah, it's it's a tricky thing how to do that. I mean, you right. know, uh, I remember I had a someone visit one of my churches years ago who said, um, uh, you know, we had like a monthly community potluck lunch. And, um, you know, my churches, most of the churches I am part of are small enough that can do that, <laughs> you know, where everyone can contribute and, and, uh, and it's very, uh, and, and it's fantastic and I love it. And, uh, and my wife, you know, would provide like wontons or, uh, 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 you know, spicy, uh, pork belly, um, uh, Korean noodles or things like that. And, and we had a guy who came and said, your church will never be diverse because you keep serving Asian food. Right. And uh, my thoughts to that is th this is a part of who I am. Um, I don't see anything problematic about this. Why mm -hmm. do I have to apologize? Right. It, it's as if burgers and fries is not ethnic. Mm -hmm. It's sort of the impression that is, is I was given. And I guess there has been a way in which, you know, our our heritage, the way that we've been raised, which is not, you know, there's nothing that we have to apologize for, can be celebrated, but yet in the context in which we all can be identified, uh, not just as image bearers, but again, as renewed image bearers, you know, mm -hmm. we have problems and I have problems in life and personal that, uh, that you know, some of you guys know about. Um, is the fact that I have this struggle with my children and I'm a Korean guy mean that means that, you know, Paul here as, as a Korean brother is the only person I could talk to about this. I mean, I can't talk to Tommy King or Scott because they're not Asian. Is, is that what we're saying here? I don't, you see, I think I don't accept that. I don't accept that, that idea that, you know, sin is so particular to me that I, uh, that what I need is an as an ethnic counsel. I need godly counsel. I need I need theological truth. That that's the comfort I have, you know, in, in the hope that I have in a resurrected Christ that is universal and cosmic and global, that isn't isolated to one particular group. Now, you know, Tommy and Scott may not be able to handle spicy pork belly. <laughs> you know, given their uh, constitution, I'm not altogether sure if they can do that, and that's okay. I can eat a burger, you know, and that, I don't think that is affected. Um, well, I mean, just a bit, you know, you know, well, there might be a certain level of a barrier there that, you know, I can't drink beer. You guys all drink beer, and that's just the way that my the Lord has wired my system. And I, and, I don't drink beer. Uh, uh, Paul drinks uh, very more, more refined materials. <laughs> oh, let's oh, just say well, beverages. It, okay, um, fine. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I drink coffee, and there are people who don't drink coffee. And you know, I guess my point simply is that there is a certain way that uh, all in the divine providence of God that He has sort of given us an experience and identity that we can connect with, you know, uh, with others in a way that is very special that may. Be harder for someone else to identify with, you know. Uh, Paul and I have been raised in a Korean church, ethnic Korean church context to some degree, and we have different um, thoughts and struggles and embracings of that. But we can talk in such a way that is sort of shorthand in a way that someone who hasn't been brought up in that environment could not understand. But at the same time, once we talk about you know faith in Christ, you know, once we talk about you know exegesis and, and Christocentric preaching, uh, you know, there there is no, you know, limited application of that. That's something that we all, regardless of our um I remember we were at this one discussion at um in a setting and uh 
uh, uh, we were talking about, you know, theology and the benefits of theology and Christian life, orthodoxy and orthopraxy and, and how they can't be separated. And, and I thought, yeah, I'm just clicking right with these guys. I'm right with you. Amen. Uh, then like another minute, we're, we're talking about diversity. And then I could feel it in the room. Everybody's looking at me, you know, uh, and, and, and now all of a sudden they're trying to persuade me that I'm one of them. You see, from my vantage point, I don't know what happened. 10 seconds ago, I was, you know, now 10 seconds later, I'm being labeled a, a minority. What happened? I mean, you know, there, there is a way in which I think that has to be discussed that preserves the diversity, you know, that we have that's, that is still God endowed and honored, yeah. but yet the, uh, the unity that we have, that is, uh, that to a certain degree, perhaps outweighs that. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, my last thought on this is, uh, I think our conversation has made very clear the specific issues are complicated, but I really do appreciate actually what Gray, I think his basic exhortation um, is for everyone to try to think about these issues theologically. And um, I know that might sound so basic to a lot of our listeners, right? But it is striking um, to me, and I've done, I think, a considerable amount of research on this topic, listening to different voices that because, I guess, racism, discrimination have caused tremendous personal pain for people, uh, the default mode seems to be to respond in a more existential, personal way. And whenever we make our personal observations and experiences normative, right, I think that's that's actually a really not the way to approach this, right? And I think the starting point, um, and some might, see, some might even argue, no, this is a very Western way of thinking. I, I don't know. <laughs> I just think this is a Christian way of thinking where we are called to think God's thoughts after him. And so I really do appreciate that. I think what Gray was getting at is um, we have to be theological and biblical as we approach these uh, things. And so I would encourage um, you know, our listeners, uh, anyone that's interested in this topic and you count yourself a believer in Christ, when you listen to perspectives, when you read accounts, right? And especially when you're like hearing like moral imperatives that we should do this and we should not do that. Um, we shouldn't all of a sudden like take off our theological caps and just respond existentially or personally. I do think that our basic calling is to really try to think about these things from a robustly theological perspective. So, Gray, I really, no, I think that it sounds so basic, but I think what you said is despite the complications, we always have to move from what's clear to what's less clear. And what's clear is what the Bible clearly teaches. Yeah, and I, two two things to say to that, right? Um, so when I said there's the priority of forgiveness, it doesn't mean just let go mm -hmm. and not address the particular issues, right? No, address it. Forgiveness means there's something to forgive, which means that there is a need for repentance and there's a need for addressing the particular sin or injustice that's been done to you. And secondly, Paul, to what you said there, some people have said this is something very odd that I've I've come to 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 sort of notice since I've I've you know lived in America back again here for the last four months or so, is that folks here seem to say things like you know thinking God's thoughts after Him. That's a very Western way of thinking. You know, I've lived in Asia basically mm -hmm. all my life. I grew up there. I ministered in Asia. If there's anything that's Western, it's not thinking God's thoughts after Him, but rather it's the overfixation on race. 
Yeah. Um, and the overfixation I, on no, gender. I agree. Yeah. yeah. So it, it, when it comes to Asia and we're talking about the sort of sensitivities and issues that, that a lot of um, Western folks uh, seem to, to talk about all the time, a lot of Asians would say, well, that's actually in a sort of humorous way, first world problems. And, and secondly, um, what's to, the, to, to, to when people talk about, oh, that's a Western way of thinking for Asians, that's the natural way of thinking. So for us, right, uh, in a lot of the context that I minister to, uh, gender differences and the ways in which men, for example, should should be protective and that there's a nurturing role, things like that for females and things like that. That's not a white thing, but rather um, it's it's transgenderism that's very white and that's very Western. So lots of folks that are for um, transgenderist sort of uh, issues and things like that in Jakarta that I've met, they would actually openly say, I've been very much Westernized. So what's uh, Western is not, mm. you know, the, the gender differences or, you know, um, talking about the Bible in an authoritative way or something like that. But rather what's Western is actually um, the, the perhaps overfixation on gender fluidity and overfixation on racial differences, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's the irony of it. And I, I would say to people, you know, I think at the end of the day, this is not for me to say these are not important issues. No, but rather... We have to be careful about what we say is yep. culture specific. Absolutely. Because yeah. you don't even know what is culture specific until you've traveled yeah. quite a bit more. Yeah. All of these things are so great. And, and um, uh, you know, uh, we were planning to do this as sort of a uh, faculty podcast short discussion that perhaps is uh, uh, worthy of a longer discussion, perhaps something we can consider uh, once we have our full crew uh, back together again. But, uh, uh, thank you guys uh, for uh, for this discussion, uh, Paul and and Gray. Um, it was great having this discussion with you guys, and hopefully this is something that we'll continue to do as, as it's such a huge area of discussion in the context, not just of the church, but even in the society that we uh, live in now. Uh, I want to thank everyone for uh, tuning in and listening to our discussion here today. Uh, I want to encourage you to con continue coming out and listening to our podcast here, especially with our entire group back together. Uh, in the meantime, if you have any uh, questions that you'd like or subjects that you'd like for us to discuss, uh, please go ahead and contact us. Share with us things that you'd like to hear um, us discuss as a group. Uh, in the meantime, uh, take care and may God bless you all.